Father, if you would be so good as to grace us with your presence today, we would be grateful. Because as your people, we need to experience your presence, your manifest presence. And when we just lift our voices to you like we've been doing from hearts that are cleansed and pure before you, Lord, we, we sense you near us. And it is good. We know that in your presence is fullness of joy. I pray that you would fill your people with your joy today, as John said earlier, Lord. And Lord, for my part today, I pray that you would grant me your divine enablement to say the things and share the things that are in my heart that you want me to say and set a watch over my lips that I might not say anything beyond that touch us in some deep ways. Thank you for the way that you've changed my life the last few years, Lord. I could never have anticipated it, but I am grateful for it. And so take these next few moments and prepare our hearts to observe your table together. And I do pray this in the precious name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And you can have a seat. Well, um, you may have gotten an email from me this week that uh, gave you the title of my sermon for today, which is Confessions of a Converted Pastor. And uh, I'm not sure what you thought. Maybe that piqued your interest a little bit or worried you, perhaps. Or maybe you thought, well, it's about time the pastor got saved and converted. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure what you thought, but... uh, My intent today is to share with you just uh, some deep ways that God has worked in my heart and life over the past four years. And so it's going to be a little bit different today, and I'm getting ready to go off on my uh, annual study break for a month that our elders graciously allow me every year. And so um, in some ways I feel like I can say anything I want to say, and then I'm out of here, you know, and uh, no, that's not really, that's not the truth. I, um, when I started talking about transformation here about four years ago in 2006, I had no idea, nothing prepared me for the kind of transformation that God was going to do in me. You see, I thought transformation was going to be for all of you. I thought God was going to change you in some neat ways, and hopefully he has, but I didn't know that I needed that much changing. <laughs> and... Um, The Lord has shown me um, and changed me in some very, very deep ways. We hosted an event here this February where um, our network churches came together and some of our leaders, and we just uh, came together and explored some of what we call our shared DNA. And uh, the other leaders had asked me to share my own journey the last few years, and I did. And afterwards, some of our staff members here came up to me and they said, you know, Steve, New Life needs to hear that. This church needs to hear what you shared today. And I thought, you know, I don't know. (laughs) This is pretty raw stuff, and and it's just my journey. And I I kind of pushed back against it a little bit. I was really worried how it might translate for you. And, uh, you know, I'm a full-time vocational pastor, and you're not. (laughs) 
And a lot of what God has done in me over the last few years has been through this role that I'm in. And so I really struggled with, Lord, you know, is my journey going to translate for, you know, IT guys and uh, those who work in retail and homemakers and this and that. And and I was reluctant to share with you what I'm going to share today because of that. But um, these folks persisted and, and said, you know, this really needs to be shared. So... I'm going, I got over my hesitation, and I'm just going to trust the Holy Spirit to uh, translate it for each and every one of you, and I hope you have ears to hear what uh, the Spirit might want to say to you today. And uh, I have some notes up here so I don't mess up too badly. Um, it started, I would say, in 2006, and uh, some events took place that began to uh, unsettle me a little bit. And um, it was God beginning to work. And the first one was, uh, I have a very good friend, a pastor friend of mine, and we've been tracking together for you know several decades, and our families were very close. And uh, in the midst of a season of, of explosive growth in his church, where everything was looking good and all the charts were going up, uh, he stepped across some foul lines and sinned. And I was the one who ended up having to confront him, which was very, very difficult. And, um, you know, this is a very good-hearted brother whom I love dearly. And I know that he didn't get up one day and say, you know, I want to wreck my church today. I want to mess up my marriage today. I know that's not true. I I know him well enough. And and in the aftermath of all of that, I, I started thinking, you know, why did this happen? How could this happen and why did it happen? And without excusing any of his choices, which, which he owned up to, one thought, one nagging thought entered my mind and it was this. Is it possible that the, the system that we bought into and the, the training that we received Create, created a kind of pressure to perform and a pressure to produce and a pressure to succeed and a pressure to keep the numbers growing and all of that so that even good-hearted people are looking for an escape, looking for a relief valve. And that really unsettled me to think that that might be true. A couple months later in 07, some of our uh, other pastors from our daughter churches were um, asking me some hard questions. And I remember in particular a meeting that we had where a couple of the guys were looking at me and, and were pressing and they were saying, well, so Steve, when are you going to start leading new life to become a church that glorifies God? What do you think I said? You know, what do you think we've been trying to do for all of these years? What I really wanted to say is, when are you going to shut up? <laughs> And when are you going to start respecting your elders, you know? And when are you going to start uh, stop biting the hand that's feeding you and all those kinds of things? I didn't say those things, but that's what I wanted to say. And uh, their questions were troubling to me and kind of unsettling, and I was able to dismiss a lot of it, but part of it was kind of felt like it had some nagging truth in there that I needed to think about. Then I had a friend, another friend, who was writing a book, and he had written his first draft of the book, and he sent it to me, and he wanted my feedback on it, and it was all about the American evangelical church and the state of, of things these days. And um, 
I read it and I, I felt after reading it like I was in his crosshairs, like he, like I was his target. And we, we met together and I remember one particular meeting at Tim Horton's up the road here where we had some heated exchanges about what he had written and what he thought was wrong with the, the American evangelical church. I didn't appreciate it and I didn't even think he had the right to say some of these things. And um, yet something about it was unsettling to me. A few months later, in the fall of 07, I hopped on a plane and took a trip to Chicago. How many of you have heard of Willow Creek Church? Is that church familiar to you? Okay. Very high-profile, famous church in our country, famous for you know, seeker-sensitive services and all of that, and they just completed a study called the Reveal Study. And uh, they had gotten bold enough to um, go to 500 different churches and pull all the church members in those churches and get results back. And uh, they hosted this little conference. It was one of the first ones that they did. And I was very interested in that because way back in the day, we had kind of bought into um, a lot of that philosophy. And so I went and with about 300 other pastors, listened to the pastor talk about the results of this study. And it was so interesting because he basically got up and said, this study, the results, the data that we're, we're getting is telling us that we need to apologize <laughs> to those of you who have followed our lead and followed our model because what we're finding is that uh, this whole notion of seeker-sensitive church is, is failing to produce real sold-out followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. And we're rethinking a lot of things. I remember getting on the plane feeling even more unsettled about that and thinking, well, what, that, what is that all about? And then, don't take this personally. This is not meant as an attack on any person or individual, but as, as I was already in this mindset and I began to look around New Life and look at our people and I began to see some of the telltale signs of what I would call consumerism or consumer Christianity in our people and I would hear people make statements, you know, new lifers make statements to the effect that, you know, I, I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it, for as long as I want it. And that was kind of unsettling to me because I wondered how much have I contributed, how much have I fed into that kind of a consumer mindset, which really runs counter to what Jesus has called us to. Then somebody gave me a CD of a sermon by a guy named Francis Chan. Heard of him? Uh, he's written some pretty um, provocative books lately. And, and the sermon that I listened to was an Easter sermon at his church out in California. And uh, basically he said, you know, Easter is the day when the crowds show up. <laughs> and all of you are here today, you know, thousands of you that I've never seen before. And we're glad you're here, but I decided to go into the New Testament and find out what Jesus said when the crowds showed up. And uh, he went through this sermon and he basically demonstrated how whenever the crowds showed up, Jesus raised the bar and thinned out the crowds. And that was kind of unsettling to me because that was counter to what I had been taught to do when the crowds show up. In the summer of 08, I went over to uh, the Zenos Summer Institute and I listened to a guy talk named D.A. Carson, who's a very smart man who uh, gave a series of lectures about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And out of that, I realized that, one, I needed to think about the gospel a little more seriously, and two, I realized there are other voices out there that I hadn't been listening to that I needed to listen to. 
And in the summer of '09, I decided to just immerse myself in some of these, listening to some of these voices of guys who were teachers and pastors who were calling their cohorts like me back to a God-centered worldview and a gospel-driven model of church. And these were voices I hadn't been listening to. And so I started listening to guys like D.A. Carson and R.C. Sproul and Tim Keller and Wayne Grudem and John Piper and Francis Chan and Mark Deaver and Louis Giglio and others. And all of these things together over a period of several years created a kind of internal combustion in my spirit that I didn't know what to do with. I wanted to hold on to the paradigm of Christianity and church that I knew because that was comfortable, but I was being pulled away from it. And for a while I felt like the trapeze guy who's let go of the one swing, waiting for the other to arrive and just suspended there in midair, which is kind of a precarious position and um, troublesome in some ways. I had long conversations with God and with a few other people that I thought might understand my predicament. Lots of 2 a.m. chats with Jesus in my loft saying, what are you doing in me? (laughs) I'm not sure. I wanted transformation to be for them, not me. But he was changing me. And as the work of God settled in my heart, I got to the point where I realized that I needed to get honest with myself and make some confessions. The first thing I had to confess is that I'd been wrong. I'd been wrong about a lot of things. I had to confess that uh, I'd been wrong to think that success is based on numbers. See, I'm a product of the church growth movement. And all the models that had been held up to me as successes were based on numbers and attendance. And, oh, you should listen to this guy because he's got a big church. And you should go to this conference or this seminar because that church is running you know, so many thousands of people. And that was what was held up as models of success. So in my mind, deeply ingrained was this notion that success equals numbers. And I don't know if that translates well to you, but pastor types think about those things a lot. And I had to confess that in my mind, success equaled numbers, and I was coming to believe that that was wrong, that that wasn't true. I didn't want to admit that. But somehow over the course of the years, how many had become more important than what kind I had to confess that in my mind, increasing the number of churchgoers had been more of a success measure than raising up true, sold-out, God-centered disciples of Jesus Christ. I would never have said that, of course, but judging based on what got me thrilled and what got me excited and what upset me, it was true. I remember a guy calling me back in 07, another pastor friend, and he said, so how are things going at New Life? And I immediately kicked into numbers recitation gear. And I said, oh man, last month we were running this and our offerings were this and that, and it was so great. And he said, that's awesome, hung up the phone. And I remember thinking, or not thinking, but having this little voice speaking to my heart saying, really? 
Is that what thrills you, Steve? Is that what excites you? Kind of scared myself a little bit. I got to the point where I had to confess that I had made success equal to numbers. Further had to confess that because that was my mindset, I bore some responsibility for some of our people here in this church staying immature and not growing spiritually. It was troublesome to me when I would see or hear about people in our church, even leaders, supposed leaders, who were making just disastrous choices in their lives. And some of them were exhibiting attitudes that were just rank. You know, one guy in particular, I remember, was leading things, but giving certain appearance when he was here at church, but at home he was treating his wife like trash and sinking into self-absorption and self-centeredness and finally got mad and upset and just left the church. And I thought, you know, man, I hope I'm not contributing. I hope I'm not feeding that kind of immaturity by how I'm carrying out my ministry here. Another supposedly mature couple was wreaking havoc in their small group and stirring things up and being divisive, and ultimately they left mad. And and so I began to have thoughts like, you know, so what if we have thousands of people showing up for weekend services, but nobody's becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ? So what, really? And if all that weren't enough, the realization dawned on me one day that admitting all of those other things, I was also admitting that I myself was not much of a God-centered person, despite what I would have liked to have believed. Success-oriented? Yeah. Numbers-driven? Yeah. Program-based? Probably. God-centered? Not so much. And that was hard to admit and confess, but it was true of me. And it especially got revealed by those two questions that I started asking myself more often. What thrills you and what upsets you? Those are really revealing questions. You ever ask those questions of yourself? What thrills you? What really makes you excited? And what upsets you? Your answers to those questions reveal a lot about what's going on in here. And they revealed a lot about me and what I was beginning to see I wasn't happy with. I had to admit that my greatest joy wasn't being found in God, and the things that upset me the most revealed a very deep-seated, man-centered orientation and outlook. So I don't know if any of this makes any sense to you, but what I've discovered is that God's primary tool in my life for transforming me, apart from this book, His Word, has been... This role that I'm in, this lead pastor role for the last five years, God has used this role to squeeze me and reveal what's inside of me so that I could see it and go, oh, this is not good. And hopefully be given the grace to confess and repent of it. Think about this. When the crowd showed up, Jesus had an annoying habit, as I said, of deliberately saying things that would offend people and drive them away, thinning out the crowd. You read John chapter 6, like I did last night with my boys, and, you know, the crowds are showing up, and Jesus looks out at them and says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. (laughs) And people said, excuse me? That's not really what we wanted to hear. And it says, many of them departed 
And time after time after time, Jesus would raise the bar of discipleship and and thin out the crowds. Think about when the, the first church at Jerusalem got huge, probably tens of thousands of people, but it failed to reproduce itself. It failed to plant other churches. God orchestrated persecution to scatter just about everybody so that the gospel would be spread. In Paul's letters to the churches that he had founded, there is no mention at all, amazingly, of weekend attendance. None. Or offering numbers. We have no idea at all from Scripture how large the church at Antioch was, or Philippi, or Thessalonica, or Ephesus, or the churches in Galatia. It just doesn't say. When I read Revelation 2 and 3 and I see the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in Revelation... He doesn't reference attendance figures or the size of any of those churches even once. You'd think that if that was as important as I'd been led to believe, that at least once, somewhere in those chapters, you'd find Jesus saying, Hey guys, you were down 10% last quarter. You need to ramp things up a little bit. Or, hey, you know, things are going well. Numbers are up. Way to go. Props to you. Not a peep from Jesus about those things. Think about this. In Mark chapter 10, the story is recorded of Jesus being approached by the rich, young ruler. This young, cool, hip, trendy guy who was loaded with money. And it says, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, this man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Anybody ever ask you that question? It's like, Jesus, a ringer. What more could you want? You came to die and give people eternal life, right? Here's a live one right in front of you. Don't blow it. Get him into the kingdom, Jesus. Verse 18, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. What are you doing, Jesus? You keep this up and you're going to lose this guy. Why are you giving him the commandments? Just tell him to pray the prayer and get saved. Verse 20, the man said to Jesus, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth, I'm good. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. What? What are you doing, Jesus? Why are you giving this guy full-on, sold-out discipleship requirements when all he wanted was to get saved and have eternal life? It says you loved him, so why are you being so unloving by raising the bar such that he'll never come back? How is that love? Where is your seeker sensitivity, Jesus? Verse 22, the man was disheartened by this saying. and He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. I think I would have said, what what were you thinking, Jesus? You let him get away. Now the guy's probably going to go to hell, and his blood's going to be on your hands, Jesus. 
I guess what I'm coming to believe is this. Jesus thinks differently than I was taught to think. Jesus has no interest in lowering the bar to get as many people in as possible. Jesus loves people, but he is not man-centered in his thinking. His love is demonstrated primarily by exposing and removing the barriers to our living a God-centered life. The gospel was given to break ourselves so that we could instead live for the glory of God, which is what we were created for, in which we'll find our highest joy, by the way. Did you know you don't have to choose between your happiness and living for the glory of God because they're intertwined. God made it that way. Your highest joy, my highest joy, will be in totally abandoning ourselves to the will of God. This was a revelation to me. I pushed back against it when I first heard it. Jesus believes that God is so great that he's worth everything. He's worth all of your life and all of my life. Jesus doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants to be your life. When Christ, who is our life, appears, the Bible says, then we will appear with him in glory. He is our life. And so many of us are pecking around in the scrap heap, thinking we can give Jesus a little bit of this or a little bit of that or have this little compartment, this little box of Jesus. And it's so wrong. Truth be told, when I first heard about these things, it was offensive to me. I was okay with the concept of God-centeredness as long as God was man-centered. But to hear that God was God-centered was offensive to me. I didn't want to hear that. Although the Bible, it's the message of the Bible from beginning to end. I created you for my glory. God being God-centered upset my paradigm so badly that I pushed back really hard at first. And then, thankfully, God was patient with me. And he gave me grace to at first accept it and then embrace it. And now I find that that has changed everything for me. It's changed how I view pastoring, preaching, church, discipleship, the Christian life, reading the Bible, praying, parenting, everything. It's changing how I present the gospel to people. You know, really, that guy, that rich young guy who walked away, you know what should have happened? He should have come to his senses, you know, Ten yards away, he should have come to his senses, stopped on a dime, turned around, ran back to Jesus, got on his knees and said, Jesus, anything you want, you can have. My money, it's yours. My time, my family, everything about me, my reputation, it is yours. Oh, if I could just have the privilege of knowing you, which is eternal life, by the way. That's what should have happened. Oh, I'll give anything for the privilege of honoring and glorifying you with my one and only life. That's not what happened. You know why? Because he did not see Jesus for who Jesus really is. And I'm convinced until our eyes are open to see the glorious Son of God for who he is, that's what we'll do. We'll walk away from the offensive claims and teachings of Jesus. But when we see him, that pearl of great price And we go, oh, I'll sell anything. I'll sell everything in order to have that. In order to have the treasure 
The great commission given by Jesus says what? Go into all the world and make converts? Disciples, God-centered people. It doesn't say go into all the world and make converts or decisions. It doesn't say go into all the world and make people who want to be saved but have no interest in following Christ. It doesn't say go into all the world and preach the gospel and produce people who want to escape the flames of hell but have no intention of repenting of their sins and giving up their self-absorption. It says go into all the world and make disciples, God-centered people. People who exchange their agenda for Jesus' agenda, who deny themselves, take up their cross, love Jesus with everything they've got, love Jesus above everybody else, and thereby demonstrate to angels, demons, Satan, and other people that Jesus is indeed the supreme treasure in all the universe worth sacrificing everything for. You see, they won't know that if we don't live that way. As Scripture says in Romans 11, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That realization has changed everything for me. And I pray it will for you also. Well, at this event we hosted here, this Transformation Summit, I finished my little talk with a story. And it's a story that I like to tell here every year in our church, and I think we're due, so I'm going to tell it again today. It's a true story. It took place over in Turkey in 320 A.D., the icy winter of 320 A.D. It's called the 40 Martyrs of the Thundering Legion, and this is a, a composite of three accounts of what happened. The governor spoke mildly but firmly. He had 40 good and strong warriors standing before him, and he needed them. They must be brought into line. I am told that you refuse to offer, you refuse to offer the sacrifices commanded by Emperor Licinius, he scowled. One of the soldiers, Camdidus, answered on behalf of all the rest, We will not sacrifice. To do so would be to betray our holy faith. Nothing is dearer or of greater honor to us than Christ our God. But what about all your comrades? Consider, you alone of Caesar's troops are defying him. Think of the disgrace you will bring upon your legion. How can you do this? They replied, to disgrace the name of our Lord Jesus is more terrible still. Exasperation crept into the governor's voice. Give up your stubborn folly. You have no Lord but Caesar. In his name, I promise promotion to the first of you who steps forward and does his duty. He paused for a moment, expecting that this lure would break their ranks, but none of them moved. Candidus replied again for the rest, You offer us money that remains behind and glory that fades away. You seek to make us friends of the emperor, but alienate us from the one true king. We only desire one gift, the crown of righteousness, and we love honors, but only those of heaven. The governor became baffled and angry. You persist in your rebellion? Then prepare for torture, for prison, for death. This is your last chance. Will you obey your emperor? But the 40 soldiers stood firm, although they knew full well the governor would carry out his threat. And they said this, Nothing you can offer us would replace what we would lose in the next world. As for your threats, we've learned to deny our bodies where the welfare of our souls is at stake. 
You threaten us with fearful torments and you call our godliness a crime, but you will not find us faint-hearted or attached to this life or easily stricken with terror. For the love of God, we are prepared to endure any kind of torture. And so the governor ordered, flog them. But still, not one of the 40 surrendered. This enraged the governor. Now he wanted them to die a slow and painful death. As a blast of cold air bit into his face, an idea seized his mind. He recalled that nearby was a lake, frozen over in the icy cold. He would order that the 40 rebels be stripped naked and herded out onto the middle of that frozen pond. Yes, that would do it. And he decided he would set soldiers around the lake's perimeter to guard them and prevent any from coming off the ice, coming to shore and escaping. And so his brutal order rang out. You will stand naked on the ice until you agree to sacrifice to the gods. The governor could hardly believe what his eyes saw next. The rebels began stripping off their own clothes and running out towards the pond in the freezing March air. We are soldiers of the Lord and we fear no hardship, shouted one. What is our death but entrance into eternal life? And striking up a song, the men marched out onto the frozen pond. In order then to increase their torture, baths of steaming hot water were placed around the lake. Imagine that. With these, the governor hoped to weaken the firm resolve of these freezing men. He told them, you can come ashore when you're ready to deny your faith, but still none did. The 40 men encouraged each other as though they were going into battle. And they said, how many of our companions in arms fell on the battlefront, showing themselves loyal to an earthly king? Is it possible for us to fail to sacrifice our lives in faithfulness to the one true king? Let us not turn aside, O warriors. Let us not turn our backs in flight from the devil. Shivering and huddled together, they courageously bore their pain and rejoiced in the hope of soon being with the Lord. Back on the shore, the shivering guards shouted into the night, Don't be idiots. What's the point? Come on out. Warm yourselves in the baths. But The soldiers began to cry out now. O Lord, Forty wrestlers have come forth to fight for thee. Grant that forty wrestlers may gain the victory. Now on the shoreline was the mother of the youngest soldier out on the ice. Finally, she came to a point when she was not able to stand it any longer, and she called out, and she enticed her son to abandon the others and come off the ice. And finally, he did weaken in the icy cold, and he crawled off the ice, babbling, Two guards ran forward from the shoreline, grasped his shuddering arms, and helped him back into or helped him into a, a warm bath. But the heat was too much of a shock to his frozen system, and he went into convulsions and he died. This scene overwhelmed one of the guards standing on the shoreline. His name was Sempronius. When he looked out and saw the young man deserting his friends on the ice and crawling back to shore, he was overcome with faith. Surprising everybody, he suddenly shed all of his armor, threw off all of his clothes, and to the utter shock and dismay of his cohorts, he ran out on the ice, shouting at the top of his lungs, I am a Christian! Then the cry of the thundering legion roared with more vigor, O Lord, forty wrestlers have come forth to fight for thee. Grant that forty wrestlers may gain the victory. When the sun rose the next day, the governor was told that the forty were all dead. Well, go and get the bodies off the ice, he commanded. Burn them and dump their ashes in the river. So the guards backed a wagon near the pond as close as they could, and they began stacking the stiff corpses onto it. But then this happened. One guard saw a movement 
and shouted out, hey, we've got a live one here. It's Melito. Poor fellow. He's just a kid. A local boy, too. And then someone noticed, there's his mother up there. The soldier beckoned to the woman and she came near. Listen, mother, take your boy home. Save his life if you can. We'll look the other way. The woman responded, what kind of talk is that? The guards looked at each other astonished. She continued, would you cheat my son of his crown? I'll never let that happen. As the wagon began to roll away, she lifted her son with her peasant's strength and hoisted him in with the others. Go, son, she cried. Go to the end of this happy journey with your comrades so that you won't be the last to present yourself before God. Seeing this, one of the guards tapped the side of his head, rolled his eyes. Christians, he muttered. I just don't understand that. I read that story every year and I ask myself, is anybody saying that about me? Is the way I live my life befuddling anybody? Are they going, Jesus must be immensely valuable for him to live like he lives. For him to sacrifice the things he sacrifices, be inconvenienced by the things he's inconvenienced by. Jesus must be of supreme value and worth because of how he lives his life. And I'm wondering, is anybody saying that about you? Is your devotion to Jesus so deep, so fierce, so true that even the threat of death would not deter you from your devotion? See, this isn't a game. This is not a game. You have one and only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The Martyr's Manifesto was recorded by Paul in Acts 20.24, where he wrote this, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. You see, Jesus is so supremely valuable that he's not only worth serving, he's worth suffering for and even dying for. Would you bow your heads with me? And Lord Jesus, I almost can't believe the depth of the work that you've done in me the last few years. I didn't engineer it. I don't know that I even would have chosen it, but I'm grateful. And Lord, I'm so far from the kind of devotion that we just read about. And Lord, I've had to repent. You know, you've given me the grace to repent of having a high view of myself and a low view of you. And Lord, as a church family, as a church body, before we come and kneel and partake of these elements that represent your body and your blood, may we repent of having a high view of ourselves and such a puny, low view of who you are. Because I suspect it's not just me that was afflicted with that, but that many of us 
And Lord, it's demonstrated by the fact that we live for ourselves. We've made idols out of ourselves. We bow down and worship at the altar of me. And Lord, it's to you it must look so foolish when we make so much of ourselves and so little of you. You are the great and glorious creator of all that is. Planning for our redemption. Giving us the gospel, the blood, the body of Christ. That when we embrace it, begins to set us free from our love affair with ourselves. And start to really enjoy glorifying you forever. And Lord, I know that's what heaven is. Unhindered, unrestricted glorifying God forever. Sometimes I wonder if many of us want to go there. If that's the heart cry. And so we need your grace today to confess, to repent, to come clean, to repent of idolatry. Would you give us that grace? So these next few moments are yours to do just that there in your seat. And then when you're ready, come and I encourage you to kneel. Take a few moments. Take one of the wafers that represent the broken body of Jesus. Dip it into the cup of juice. It represents his shed blood. And then partake. And as you do, thank Jesus from the bottom of your heart for what he has done. Because he is truly worth it. And we're going to worship together as we do this.